1: Welcome to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club, I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing solar solar power in California and around the world. Since Bell Labs created the first photovoltaic cell in the 1950s, solar energy has been the stuff of dreams and disappointment. Capturing the sun's clean, abundant energy suffered from high costs and low efficiency, That's gradually starting to change. Innovative technology, concern about carbon pollution, and supportive policies in Europe and the United States are moving solar power from the fringe to the mainstream. Solar powers are now cool and cropping up in the desert and on rooftops, but today only 1% of America's electricity comes from the sun. For the next hour, we'll discuss the state of solar power with the live audience here at the Commonwealth Club and two veterans of the solar industry. Tom Dinwiddie is founder and former CEO of SunPower, a manufacturer of solar power systems with annual sales of $2 billion. He currently serves as the company's chief technology officer. Dan Sugar is a former president of SunPower who currently is CEO of Solaria, another maker of solar cells for utility scale project. And he has more than 20 years of experience in renewable energy. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, so, Dan Sugar, let's begin with you. Uh, Fifty years, solar power is one percent of American electricity. Is that is that a success? Is that where where it should be?
2: Well, in the early days, uh, solar was evolving and d- became very cost-effective for uh, satellites um, and, space uses. and space communications. We wouldn't have the ability to, you know, use cell phones and, and uh, some of the other devices without that. What really – solar really took off for terrestrial applications or applications we can use, you know, here uh, for our homes and businesses really about 10 years ago. And so that was really when the industry started taking off. Solar has grown with a annually compounded growth of 69 percent annually compounded growth for 10 years in a row. Solar is, for the last 10 years, the fastest – uh, growing energy technology, and last year our industry, solar, manufactured, and mm-hmm. shipped, and installed on for homes, businesses, and power plants, 17 gigawatts of power. Now that's the daytime equivalent of what 17 nuclear power plants put out. So I would argue, and why why was all that happening? for technology reasons and cost reduction reasons we can get into. So I'd argue solar is the shining example of uh, how technology innovation uh, has enabled us to reduce cost and solve our energy needs in a uh, renewable uh, and attractive way for, for customers.
1: Well, Tom, where do you think it's going? Where do you think that in five years or so, where will solar be as a percentage of U.S. power generation, five or ten years? It takes a long time to build market share in energy. It
3: takes a long time, Greg. uh, But uh, as Dan says, the industry is growing at over 65 percent a year. Um, And if you look at exponential growth as opposed to linear growth, uh, it adds up very quickly. So if you simply play it out, Take that growth and wean it down to something manageable as a large industry. Call it 15% a year growth. If you just do the math, and anybody here can do this on their uh, on their BlackBerry or iPhone right now, just play it out. Uh, you've crossed over with entire the entire U.S. electrical requirement by on the order of 2040. So uh, in the next 10 years, I don't know exactly the numbers, 5 to 10, percent, approaching 10% a very high fraction of all new energy capacity additions uh, will be solar and wind. So, uh, uh, as you say, it's fast becoming a mainstream uh, technology, uh, and as we replace our aging fossil fuel plants and nuclear plants over the coming 10, 20, 30 years, (coughs) solar uh, and wind will be ideal replacements for them. So, So Greg,
1: Greg, could I uh,
2: uh, add to Tom's uh, comment uh, just briefly? Another way to think about, okay, is this technology significant um, or not? So in the last three years, if you just look at North America, there's been three times more wind and solar installations in megawatts installed than coal. Now, part of that is due to the excellent work of the Sierra Club and our allies uh, sharing what the – you know, devastating environmental consequences of those polluting coal resources are. Uh, but just on absolute megawatt scale, this is a real industry. And um, it's true, it's still a relatively small percentage of the total. But if you look at it, it's a huge percentage of what's uh, what's been built in the last few years and what's going to be built, uh, and we'll get into that later. So it's just for calibration, this is a real thing.
1: So it's been a commercial industry for about 10 years. And one of the things that happens in new commercial industries is there's some, some growing pains. And, and recently, uh, one solar company, a German solar company, filed a complaint with the World Trade Organization saying China is dumping uh, solar panels in the United States below cost. And that's divided the industry between those who are competing against China and, uh, and those who are buying that, those cells and really like the cheap cost. So let's talk about the, how that's dividing the industry. Tom, do you want
3: to – Well, Greg, it is true. It's dividing the industry somewhat. Um, Those who are buying Chinese panels and deploying them and selling uh, Mm. uh, solar systems to customers are benefiting from this. Uh, They have a lower cost value
1: proposition. Uh, As well as consumers like myself and others who have bought them.
3: Absolutely. Um, And so there's an argument it's good for the industry overall. Some manufacturers are being hurt more than others. Some are actually – filing for bankruptcy, and uh, some simply are seeing lower earnings. Uh, I think it's a temporary phenomenon. You'll see demand in the world pick up as a result of these low costs, and uh, there will be more of a supply-demand balance in the future. But at the moment, there is more supply than demand, and the Chinese are willing to uh, sell at very low margins. Dan
1: Sugar, you did not join the World Trade Organization complaint. Why? Why? Well,
3: I think there is really valid
2: uh, concerns on both sides of the debate, okay? On the one hand, you have some U.S. manufacturers that say, hey, China's advanced some $40 billion to these solar companies, and, you know, they have access to low-cost capital, and they're selling below their costs." okay? That's true. Is that dumping? Is that necessarily a horrible thing? Why can't, you know, our government have proactive industrial policy to fund stuff that works, uh, and build out our um, our manufacturing infrastructure. Uh, we didn't join. Uh, but on the other side, there's valid debates. And as an environmentalist, I'm glad that China helped the solar industry get to an enormous scale so quickly. We can do the same thing here in the U.S. The uh, We didn't join. Uh, we share some of the concerns, but we didn't think that we thought that was quite a blunt instrument in terms of using a – anti-dumping measure. One thing that uh, is a fact that isn't discussed in this particular the media coverage of this issue is that China's maintained a 17 percent import duty uh, uh, of panels that are made, to sh- that are shipped into China. Mm-hmm. So we think uh, just having a conversation and trying to level the playing field would be the right way to go about equalizing That, Um, but we we didn't uh, support the anti-dumping approach.
1: There's on the other side. There's been an industry group formed of of the buyers, and one person for Sun Edison said the net effect of this complaint would be a decline in U.S. jobs. Is that possible? If the World Trade Organization complaint is successful, that it could actually hurt the creation in this nascent industry. Where so many installers and those sorts of things, if if prices rise, that's going to hurt installers. That's going to hurt companies. Uh, consu- people are going to buy less. It, it could be less. Result in fewer solar. jobs. I think it's
2: premature the- to speculate on on the impact on jobs. In you know, th- there's some U.S. manufacturers could hire more. On the other hand, it's important to note that a lot of raw materials that go into solar panels are actually made in the U.S. The largest manufacturer of polysilicon materials. Is actually hemlock based in Michigan, okay? And they're they're selling that into China, so they may come back with a reciprocal tariff. It's hard to say. But let's take stock, okay? This is a temporary issue that just came up on this complaint. It has not been ruled on by the uh, by the government. Let's take stock of where we are. The U.S. solar industry had six billion dollars of value last year. We had net exports of 1.9 billion dollars. The U.S. industry grew at 69 percent last year. While many other industries in in this country are collapsing, we're growing, adding jobs. Today there's over 100,000 Americans working in solar. That's more uh, folks than are working in steel mills and more folks that are working in coal mines. So this green jobs – and that's just directly people working in solar, not the ancillary companies that are manufacturing equipment and so forth. So uh, clean tech jobs are real. Uh, we're hiring at our, our company, Solaria Corporation, in Fremont. We're hiring. We're expanding our capacity um, as quickly as we can, prudently, and many of our sister companies in this area, it's happening. So this is this is a real industry. To try to think through how the China uh, situation may or may not impact the total job growth is premature. We generally think a, a freer trade and. More dialogue with these other countries is, is the more beneficial way to conduct ourselves.
1: If I could add, Can I, with, Tom, de yeah, yeah. If I could
3: add, uh, I mean, it causes, it should cause this country to consider what is its uh, industrial policy. Uh, you know, certainly we've supported the automobile industry, we've supported the the, finan- the the Wall Street, uh, the finance industry, uh, and certain certain energy sectors. Um, China, five years ago, owned 5 percent of world production. Now it's approaching 55 percent. They see this as the next Saudi Arabia. Does the U.S. want to see it that way or not? Um, and what uh, China is doing is they're providing very low-cost capital to its companies. This is a capital-intensive industry. Um, it's basically all plant, no fuel costs. Right. So the sun is free. It, yeah. The sun is free. And so uh, it's a choice we have to make, and it's a
1: it's a healthy debate. Well, the U.S. did that in the case of Solyndra, provided low-cost uh, financing, and that is a cost celeb right now for people who are saying that the U.S. shouldn't pick winners and sh- maybe made some bad bets. So we need to talk about Solyndra.
3: Sure. Let's talk about Solyndra. Uh, Solyndra uh, basically is a victim of the success of the solar industry. The industry has been very successful in driving its costs down. Solyndria... Solyndria Solyndra, I'm sorry, uh, didn't have as uh, steep a cost curve, and the government made an investment in Solyndra along with some very smart and savvy venture capitalists, and they made a bad bet. Whether the government should be betting on individual companies, that's a matter for public debate, Um, but – uh, Do you think that's that what it they, the bad government bad. should
1: pull back and be more at the earlier R&D stage rather than picking specific companies?
3: I think – personally, I think that's a great place for the government to be. I think also a good place for the government to be is providing loan guarantees uh, to very large-scale power plants because the private sector, finance sector today is not capable of uh, providing – uh, that level of funding to the very large solar power plants, which are a small fraction of the solar industry overall, but uh, a, an important fraction.
1: Dan Sugar, has Solyndra really created a problem for the solar industry?
3: Uh,
2: only because it was a, became a campaign issue because President Obama went there. <coughs> but let's let's contextualize the Solyndra thing. First of all, it was 0.2 percent of global shipments. They were a non-entity in the global PV manufacturing area. Number two – uh,
1: but half a billion dollar taxpayer money.
2: I, that's a big number, but that's 2% of the loan guarantees that are, that are basically out there. Most of them are for nuclear, which is a, a completely non-economic, you know, toxic thing. That's it, the only reason there's any viability for nuclear is that those loan guarantees are there. So yeah. taking a step back, um, and talking about industrial policy for a minute, I think Tom brought up an, an excellent, excellent point. Why did the semiconductor industry go to Malaysia? Okay. Because there's low-cost jobs? No. Okay. The labor content in the chip that's in your cell phone is minimal. Why did a lot of the solar manufacturing go to China? Because the labor is low-cost? No, absolutely not. The labor content in the solar panel is 5 to 10%. It is access to capital. Now, what was so uh, misunderstood uh, guided in the loan guarantee program as, as it was originally conceived is that in order to apply for it, you actually had to prove that you had gone to every other lender and they wouldn't lend it to you. Because, God forbid, this country starts lending to stuff that works, um, within the manufacturing sector. There's some folks in Congress that thinks that, that believe that uh you know we're going to compete with the uh lending from commercial lenders but the the issue is in a in a capital starved uh economy which is what we are now it's very difficult to get loans for proven um, manufacturing uh entities so what happened is in malaysia a lot of the manufacturing went there because the government essentially said hey we'll give you a loan you pay it back uh, great. So you had, you know, Intel, AMD, all these. Co- that's why semiconductor went there, not because of cheap labor. Same thing with solar. These, uh, China's put out, you know, 40, 50 billion dollars. I think it's very smart. We should be doing the same thing. But let's not, let's not get hung up on, oh, it has to be something that's, you know, way out there. Let's, fun things that are, are proven and working.
1: So we don't, that's our
2: that's our issue.
1: Here. We don't have that money because we we sent it all to China for the <laughs> stuff that that they're making, right? I mean, the US in this political environment is not in the in the uh, in the situation, political context to be making these kinds of loans, making these kinds of bets. We're we're in retraction mode.
2: It, it would take vision and leadership, but uh, those monies are, you know, uh, basically you if you don't make investments you can't grow. So that's so, a
1: priority
3: for yeah. the US
1: government. Let's talk about a couple other countries. Uh, Germany and Spain have been very instrumental in the growth of the global uh, solar industry. Uh, Spain went, you know, just on this solar binge for a couple of years, had a high feed-in tariff, basically guaranteed a high price for people to put solar electricity into the system, and they, and they had a, a crash. What was learned from that bubble in Spain? What was learned from that, Greg,
3: is you need consistency in policy, um, as in germany is a great example of that they've had a, 50, uh, a feed-in tariff since the early 2000s and it's which been st- is
1: a price guaranteed for suppliers
3: correct if you feed photovoltaic electricity into the grid at any point you are paid a rate for that electricity and it's been to, steadily declining since the early 2000s and today say for uh, uh, ground mounted power plants it's only on the order of the retail cost of electricity so it's 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 The the tariff has come down to a fairly low level, and it's been a huge success uh, for Germany. There are parts of Germany today that are 40 to 50% powered by solar and wind.
1: And Germany is not a sunny country. But the uh, the prices, though, what I looked up today was that the prices are around $0.29 a kilowatt hour, which is almost triple what we would pay here in in California. So the German – rate payers, the German consumers, have, have paid a fair premium uh, to, to jumpstart that industry. Now, maybe that's great for, for reducing carbon emissions, and it's great for the industry, but they've paid a price to do that.
3: Well, they've paid a price to do that. They've created an industry. They've created jobs across Germany. Uh, Germany has uh, installed for the last three years on the order of eight gigawatts, seven to eight gigawatts of solar per year, much of that on rooftops. So the level, the job level and the level of infrastructure that's been built up there is, is extraordinary. And they have uh, – today solar is, in Germany overall, uh, not a huge fraction of their energy supply, but the infrastructure is in place to continue to grow that to a very large fraction – and as this feed-in tariff comes down, it's it's less of a, a, a burden on the German economy. So, uh, and with all the jobs created in that country, unemployment levels are low, and uh, they regard it as a very serious uh, uh, and and good investment.
1: And a long-term investment, not just looking at the cost today, but looking at, at a longer time frame. St- yes, that we might hear.
3: Sorry, yes. Uh, every solar panel installed, you basically know the cost of electricity f- from that panel for the next 30 years of its operation or more um, it's it's a it's a perfect hedge against the volatility you see in in gas and uh, and coal
1: we're talking about solar energy in California and around the world with Tom sugar from uh, sun power and um, Dan sugar from Solaria I see you did that earlier with with cylindria it got me that uh, we go way back yeah yeah Tom Dinwoody uh, from SunPower and Dan Sugar from Solaria. I'm Greg Dalton. Um, let's, in California, there's been some efforts recently to get other types of renewable power in, into the grid. And the, uh, I'm thinking particularly of uh, biomass and some farm waste. And some of the agricultural interests in California said that, you know what, Solar and wind got a sweetheart deal. They've been sort of the, the favored uh, children, and they've gotten lots of preferential treatment. And other sources of, of renewable energy want to get the same thing that solar and wind have had with lots of, uh, lots of uh, treats from the government. Is that fair, that solar and wind have had kind of a sweetheart deal?
3: Uh, I would not call it a sweetheart deal at all. It's, uh, f- uh, uh, there's been an effort to create a level playing field for uh-huh. solar, uh, the level of subsidies to the fossil and nuclear industry uh, dwarfed the level of subsidies to solar. There's a study by the Environmental Law Institute showing that in the years between 2002 and 2008, over $70 billion of subsidies went to the fossil industry um, at a time when only $2 billion went to solar. Uh, and if you look at the early years of subsidies, uh, the amount per year uh, provided to uh, uh the fossil and nuclear industries is over three times that that's uh, being provided to solar today. Uh, so uh, those are big been an sweethearts. Effort, yeah, those sorry. are big sweethearts, and and those are permanent subsidies actually to those industries, whereas uh, the the subsidies to solar uh, 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 fall off in 2016. So it's. Uh, uh, There's a discrepancy today, but there's an effort to create a level uh, playing field for solar. Should there be a level playing field for other uh, emerging technologies? Absolutely. What I would suggest we have is a level playing field where all subsidies are removed. And I think it would be an ideal thing for the government to begin to consider, maybe say in the period 2015 to 2020, give industries time to plan, but begin to remove subsidies, phase out subsidies in all of the sectors.
1: That would be popular in Congress.
3: Yeah, so uh,
2: President Obama this okay. year sent three times a letter to Congress. There's $4 billion of subsidies for oil exploration, mm-hmm. Okay, the mm-hmm. most profitable industry on the planet, and said, hey, you guys look like you're doing okay. Uh, we'd like this subsidy to be removed. It wasn't. But I think, you know, uh, Greg, California is a model for smart environmental policy, and that's why California is the largest solar market in the U.S. and why more solar jobs are here. And what's happened is there's a covenant between the policy people and the industry that, okay, we're going to give you some incentives to jumpstart this, you know, environmentally preferred technology. You have to reduce cost. And we've achieved that here. When the program started here with the California Energy Commission 10 years ago, uh, there was a rebate out there for $4.50 a watt. Okay, and then as the market grew, the rebate was to come down. One went from 450 to three to 250 to two to a dollar fifty. Today it's well less than a dollar, and the solar market's expanding like crazy. So, uh, what's what's really amazing is um, that the technologies uh, evolved to the point where it's by far the most reliable way to generate power. Every solar panel that's installed. Comes with a 25 year warranty on the guaranteed power. Now, think about can you think of another appliance in your home or business that comes with a 25 year warranty? The reliability and the cost reduction of this uh, incredible technology has enabled now very smart companies to start financing these, where at your house you can put no money down, this company will own the system and sell so you power at less than the cost of your utility power because they know that technology is going to be there reliable, and then they can go get financing on that. So it, this leasing, essentially, for solar will do for help the industry grow in a similar way as leasing enabled folks to get automobiles. How many people would have write a check for fifteen dollars or $20,000 for the car when you can get leasing and expand the market? So there's some very smart companies like... Sunrun and Sungevity and SolarCity that are expanding, helping drive this market and expand
1: it. And and I think that – financial innovation has been really key one of the raps on solar was it was elitist that is, okay it's great if you're wealthy and you can afford to uh, mm-hmm. to write a write a big check but that kind of innovative financing which some of it came out of berkeley and didn't come out of industry it came out of government actually the pace program mm-hmm. uh, really kind of level kind of also made it uh, less elitist i guess in terms of making solar power more accessible to the, to the to use a common phrase, the 1%. That,
3: that's absolutely right, Greg. So the PACE program out of Berkeley, and uh, a, a very unique, novel, innovative program. But the private sector has also taken this out. As Dan mentioned, there are many companies right now basically offering solar for a home or business for no money down immediate savings. It's kind of like a cell phone. You can get a cell phone today for free as long as you sign on to a plan. And this particular plan with solar will guarantee you electricity at less than you're paying to the utility for. So – so uh, what you were talking about before in terms of these these these, these uh, subsidies, these incentives that have gotten this indus- – given this industry a jumpstart are really having paybacks to the consumers who now have power at lower costs than they would o- otherwise have from the utility from solar.
2: So, Greg, I'd like to take this opportunity to challenge your audience that if you don't have solar on your home or business, what are you waiting for? Uh, you can basically do that without writing a check. These three companies I mentioned – They'll do an evaluation, no money down. You might be paying, hypothetically, uh, the utility $250 a month before the solar. They put the solar on. You might pay the utility $50 a month after and pay this other company, you know, $150 or $175, end up with $25 in your pocket at the end of every month. So this is a great opportunity for us to scale. Let me
1: just ask, how many people do have solar? So uh, about 10 people out of 50 or so? How many people would like to have solar? A lot of people, yeah. Near, nearly well, everyone. Thanks for I guess coming. That's, that's, the why, that's why right you're here. here. Yeah. That's why Actually, here.
3: that brings up a really good point. It is a very popular technology. The polls show that 9 out of 10 Americans support the development of solar energy, and uh, 8 out of 10 support federal incentives for solar energy. They want to see that option on the table.
1: And it's also, you say, it's also a bipartisan issue. It's,
3: it's a bipartisan. It's, it's it. Scores very high on either side of the
1: spectrum.
2: Hey Jim, I'm a. Or,
3: sorry, Greg. I'm, I'm a. All
1: right, I started. Oh, oh, the, I sorry. started the name mess up. Let's, just, let's just, look, just get sloppy. I'm, yeah. I'm
2: kind of a solar solar freak. I love it, and I just want to share why I'm so excited about this for just a second, from a technology perspective. I am an engineer, right? Photovoltaics, photo light, okay. It's the only technology that's ever been discovered that makes energy with no moving parts and burning no fuel. Okay, now, if you take the solar cells out of a panel, you can hold the cells in your hand like a deck of cards. Okay? That, little, that solar is made from uh, sand, basically refined quartzite, which is the second most abundant material in the crust of Europe. We're not going to run out of quartzite. Okay? Now, what does that do over its life? It generates the energy equivalent of burning five tons of coal, or ten barrels of oil. You could okay, so you can hold in one hand, you know, this nice refined sand that does that. This magic material. How does it actually work? So that the the, uh, the sun, ninety-three million miles away, that's practical fusion right there. It generates these photons, liberates these photons that travel at the speed of light through space. They come here in eight minutes. They hit that cell and it generates DC current directly. And then basically that can get converted to AC and it can be used in your home or business at any voltage. The life of a solar cell is over 100 years. Practically in a panel, when I first started working this, I am an electrical engineer. I'm like, well, when does it run out of electrons? Well, it doesn't because it's in a closed circuit. Now, um, I couldn't believe it when I first figured out that this thing just keeps going. Practically in a solar panel, because you put it outside, you put anything outside eventually, you know, the expected life is about 30 years. But, I mean, it's incredible. It's – it's. I mean, look at the Mars rovers, right, these things we shot through space. They bounce down, you know, these, these little carts that are out collecting data on Mars. They're powered by solar. They're all that distance away. They're not maintained. They're still going. Uh, seven or eight years later. So, anyway, I just wanted to share my excitement about this technology. I think that's evident,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> we had um, – Bobby Kennedy was here uh, a couple weeks ago. He referred to, yes, uh, sweet patriotic fuel from heaven as a solar solar power. And yet panels these days are only, what, 15 to 20% efficient. How, when are we going to see more in – Efficiency and conversion of those those photons from 93 million miles away into electrons.
3: Greg, every year there are incremental improvements in efficiency across the industry. The uh, efficiency of a module varies anywhere from say 10% for a thin film module to 23% for high efficiency uh, crystalline modules. Um, that's enough. That's that's sufficient efficiency, although there. Are Uh, increasing levels, incremental increases in efficiency year by year. Uh, But there do not need to be breakthroughs in higher efficiency. Really what it is in the solar industry today is a cost gain, driving down the cost of solar. And by the way, yes, there are marginal improvements in efficiency. The fact of the matter is you could put solar on an area the size of Nellis Air Force Base, roughly 70 miles by 70 miles, and power the entire country, from Maine to L.A., residential, commercial, industrial kilowatt hours, day and night use with an area covered by that. You wouldn't y- in such an area, 70 miles by 70 miles. It's like a, a county in Arizona. But you wouldn't do it that way. You don't need to do that. You would incur very expensive transmission costs. So you distribute it, and you put it on rooftops, and you put it on marginal lands, and uh, uh, you can have dual use with agriculture, and there are – Distributed around the country, and that's how we do
1: solar. There's quite a debate in the solar and renewable world about distributed versus centralized. There's some centralized fans who say, look, large industrial scale, big gigawatt plants in the desert, and others who say, no, 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 it needs to be close to where the demand is in, in cities, et cetera. So, where do you come down on that in terms of the distributed versus centralized?
3: Well, they will both happen. Uh, the industry today is deploying in the residential sector, the commercial sector as you t- say, utility power plants. And it's roughly a third, a third, a third today. And if I were to project 30 years from now at saturation, it will be about a third, a third, a third. Um, rooftops are, are an ideal place to, to, to uh, place photovoltaics. But on lands that are, are available, uh, near load centers, that makes sense as well. So different companies have different drives, and uh, I think all applications are, are suitable for And it for solar. provides a
2: range of benefits so I used to be a transmission planning engineer for pg and on the, you know, doing high-voltage transmission planning and substation operations. We spent five years studying this. What are the – what are photovoltaics actually provides a range of benefits to the electric transmission distribution system. And in this way, solar is unique among all power-generating technologies. Now, why is that? Well, if you look at what causes electric use or demand – it's entirely, almost entirely a sunlight-driven activity on peak. And why is that? Well, when the sun's shining, people are up, and they're in their offices, number one. Number two, the sunlight drives air conditioning loads. Number three, the sunlight drives evaporation and and agricultural water pumping requirements. So what you find is, in the summer, the summer loads are much higher in California than they are in the winter. There's about 50 gigawatts of load in the summer, and much less in the winter. And over the course of a day, so in the middle of the night, the load's about 30 gigawatts, and then in the day, it goes to 50 gigawatts. Almost like every hot summer day, there's that kind of range, that kind of difference between the off-peak and the on-peak. Well, what's happening is, to meet the on-peak, the utility's dispatching ever less efficient resources, more polluting resources. People ask, when's solar going to be cost-effective? Well, solar is already much lower cost than peaking gas, which is being dis- dispatched in the day. There's two gen- ways to generate power, base load gas, which is relatively low cost and relatively clean, and peaking gas, which is high cost, over $0.25 cents a kilowatt hour, about double the cost of solar in California, and very dirty. So not only are we displacing this dirty, expensive peak generation with solar, but when it's distributed through the grid, it's supporting the voltage, reducing line losses, and uh, delaying or uh, deferring or eliminating the need to uh, build new transmission lines and substations. We proved that in a national project with the U.S. Department of Energy and with PG&E and other utilities. We actually went out measured it, empirically validated that hypothesis, and then introduced that those results into a testimony at the – distributed rate banking proceeding at the California Public Utilities Commission, and that became the underpinning of net metering, which started in California and has now been replicated in 43 states among the country. So solar benefits the grid in a way that no other technology does because there's a natural match that also uh, provides environmental benefits.
1: Dan Sugar is CEO of Solaria. Our other guest today at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is Tom Dinwiddie, the chief technology officer at SunPower. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, you want to jump in there, Tom? Uh, well, I do. Dan's had his
3: enthusiasm moments, and I'd like to Go for it. where
1: I'm quite enthusiastic about solar.
3: You saw in addition to everything Dan's talked about, it has to do with the scalability of solar. This is really fascinating. Solar is one of the first factory-produced energy technologies. Okay? It's field-deployed on rooftops and in the fields. But let me give you an example of how scalable this technology is. In Germany last year, eight gigawatts were installed. That's roughly eight nuclear power plants in one year. The last time we built a nuclear power plant in this country, it took 22 years, seven months, watts bar one in Tennessee. Okay, It takes five to 10 years to build, say, a 500-megawatt gas or coal plant. But eight gigawatts in one year in a local market, Germany, and in fact, in June last year alone, 2.1 gigawatts of solar were installed. So we're talking a technology that deploys gigawatts in months, not five to ten years for gas and coal, or decades for nuclear. This is a factory produced energy technology. You have factories that are you know, generating gigawatts per year out of them in a, uh, in a highly quality controlled environment high volume, mass production, and they're simply field deployed. Construction in the field is really simple relative to uh, a uh, modern-day conventional power plant. So uh, it's coming, and it's coming fast, and uh,
1: get ready for it one of the critiques of solar is this intermittency the fact that it's not there all the time it can't replace base load a coal-fired power plant can burn at the same time gas could be turned up and down just uh, gas power plants just like your stove so you think that this is overplayed it's not as big a deal as as solar skeptics would believe let's talk about that Dan Sugar sure
2: so i mentioned there's this natural correlation between sunlight and load right so we studied this extensively at PG&E. And then uh, our work was emulated by the National Renewable Energy Labs. There's a great researcher. His name's Richard Perez in New York. And if richardperez.com, he's got 25 brilliant technical papers. They looked at um, uh, a range of utilities across the country, all the top load areas in the country. It turns out, no matter where you are in America, when the utilities are experiencing the peak loads, the sun's shining brilliantly. So we've looked at the variability issue in great detail. And it turns out that on a statistical basis, solar's there. We can take solar up to 20, 30, 35% penetrations into the grid. So in other words, we're contributing 25% of the energy in the grid with no massive storage or, or these other technologies. Tom mentioned already in southern Germany, in Bavaria, there are days when 40 percent of the grid is, is basically running on solar. Uh, we've done projects on uh, island, in island areas in Hawaii and other places where huge penetrations are, are being powered by solar. So the idea that we need some breakthrough in battery or storage technology in order to get to much larger levels of penetration of solar is is factually untrue.
3: If I can add, but, mm-hmm. yes, I'd like to add that. Um, Yes. So this is happening in Germany today. Forty to fifty percent penetrations are achieved with solar and wind. Same is true in Portugal and Spain, areas that have had fast penetration of of these
1: technologies. Um, Do uh, they have so-called smart grids? Have they had to modify their grid to to accommodate kind of power coming and going? uh, uh, They are
3: evolving the smart grid. Uh, uh, In fact, um, a study was done by the Rocky Mountain Institute looking at the ERCOT system in Texas, showing that the combination of solar and wind, because they generate at different times of the day, solar and wind and demand-side management, which is essentially smart grid, the combination of those threes can get you to the high 90s liability of power supply uh, per load. Um, And uh, that's an extraordinary result. So basically what will happen with solar is we will get up to, as Dan says, 30 to 50% penetration, as Europe is doing, by simply substituting the generation. Then smart grid or demand-side management will extend that penetration up to 60, 70, 80, 90 percent, depending on the system. And so with those technologies alone, you can begin to retire your coal plants because they are an aging infrastructure. You can retire your nuclear plants. And by the 2040s, 2050s, there might be some uh, amount of gas that's used to, uh, to ramp quickly at various times. Uh, but by that time, we will have very cost-effective battery storage. So we will see
1: how it plays out in that time frame. Tom Dinwoody is CTO of SunPower. Our other guest today is Dan Sugar, CEO of Solaria. I'm Greg Dalton. You're listening to Climate One. We'll be right back. Um, now we're going to put a, a microphone up here. And if you're on this side, we invite you to please go not cross in front of this camera here. We will. Uh, you can go out that door, please. and then. Well, uh, Jane Ann is right back there. Um, We'll encourage you to welcome your comments and questions. Uh, If you need some help keeping it brief, I'm happy to help Um, and uh, encourage you to participate. This is often the most fun and uh, engaging part of of what we do. So um, let's talk about opening electricity markets. People talk about most of the country has monopolies, and people think there won't really be innovation in electricity until there. Consumers have choice, and there's both uh, different suppliers. Uh, Dan, you worked for PG&E. There's a move in the state in some quarters to have community choice aggregation, which to have, you know, open up the markets. Do you think that's going to be an important source of innovation to open up on on the utility side? Yeah, there's a lot of consumers. So,
2: first of all, just uh, building on what Tom said, whether folks are in, you know, Houston or San Francisco, they overwhelmingly want their energy to come from renewable resources uh, by 80%, 90%, poll after poll. So there's a – people really want this stuff, okay? Now, if you happen to be in an apartment or in a place where, you know, you don't have a good uh, – you don't have favorable solar access, the ability to be able to participate into in a, uh, a larger system that's owned by a community or get your – power from a green power marketing program offered by the local utility are options. Increasingly, utilities are turning to renewables because uh, it, it can be profitable, and they're recognized. In fact, the largest owner of uh, the renewables uh, assets in the country are utilities, and it's much more popular and, uh, you know, increasingly cost effective. So I definitely think that these innovative programs like community energy, uh, and utility green marketing programs will help uh, reach the customers that cannot put it on their home and business.
1: Dan Sugar, CEO of Solaria. Let's have our first audience question. Yes. Yes, good evening. This is
0: fascinating. I have two very quick comments and one question. My
1: you can first... pick, pick one. We have, one, we have, uh, we have a okay. line of people behind you. Uh,
0: you talked about 25-year guarantees. I drive a 1972 Datsun 510. So do the math. That's even more than 25 years. But my question is, what role has the military, particularly the bases in California, played in uh, developing alternative energy, particularly sun and wind?
2: Sure. So uh, actually the U.S. military has been a fantastic leader in driving forward with renewable energy. Uh, Tom and I, uh, when when, uh, we were with Powerlight Corporation in 2007, built – a 14-megawatt system on the Nellis Air Force Base, which at the time was the largest photovoltaic project in America. And that project's overperformed year after year. Uh, we did uh, dozens of systems uh, on the military. The military actually uh, really understands and takes seriously uh, energy security, meaning they don't want these, uh, for, you know, to be dependent on foreign sources of energy, of energy, and also um, they really are uh, very concerned about global warming and how that's going to impact their bases. Also, the military has been a leader in using hybrid technologies on aircraft carriers and things like that, and using solar instead of – it takes it costs $50 to get a battery to a soldier in the field. And so now they figured out that, wow, we need these solar devices out there in the field. So those are just a few of the ways the military is actually engaged in this.
1: And if you're interested in more information, we had uh, an Assistant Secretary of the Navy here a couple of weeks ago talking about all the things that the Navy uh, is, is doing, and that's in the podcast in the iTunes Store. Let's have our, our next audience question. Hi there. So I have no doubt that that solar can can scale up. I think there's a lot of public buy-in on both the East and West Coast, but I think there's a greater majority of Middle America that don't believe in this 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 industry. And so my question, and a lot of pushback that I get, is will solar be able to create the amount of jobs that oil and gas can create in this country?
3: Okay. Tom Dinwiddie. Yes, I'd be happy to answer. So uh, in the Midwest, the Midwest is not uh, uh, as far along, say, as the two coasts, uh, but it's beginning to happen in the Midwest. Colorado is a very large market. Uh, Campbell Soup has installed a system, I believe it's in Ohio um, uh, there, there's a system in lar- very large system in Chicago. Um, uh, you're starting to see it happen in the Midwest, and it's simply a matter of of uh, experience and and companies expanding to those areas after going first to the markets that have the strongest value propositions. Um, so it is coming that way. Yes, it will take some time. And if I could add,
2: uh, there's been a very detailed analysis. Uh, looking at how many jobs per megawatt of different technologies. Solar has seven jobs per megawatt. Oil and gas have one job per megawatt. And if you actually look where there's a lot – the most solar jobs are in California because the market's here, but there's there's a tremendous amount of solar jobs in Tennessee. Uh, there's uh, glass manufactured there, silicon. In Michigan, I mentioned Hemlock Semiconductors there. They make their largest producer of silicon in the world. And throughout the country, uh, there's – The Solar Foundation, if you go to solarfoundation.org, they actually have a uh, detailing of the jobs in America, over 100,000 people working directly in solar.
1: Let's have our next audience question.
3: So speaking of solar jobs, you two are both company leaders, and you're leaders of companies that are engaged in a very growth-oriented industry, which means that many of your employees, prospective employees, will probably be coming from different backgrounds. I was curious, maybe on a little bit more of a micro level, you know, for each of your companies, what are sort of the top three company-wide attributes that you're looking for in new employees? Because the the majority of them may not have come from solar. Mm -hmm. Tom DeWitty,
1: when you're hiring, what are you looking for? Well, okay,
3: so there's a range of jobs available in this industry, from – uh, installers who are placing the, uh, panels on rooftops to PhD scientists who are not only involved with device physics but, uh, developing the next generation manufacturing equipment. And you have engineers who are designing, uh, f- uh systems, engineers who are de- designing, uh, fabrication equipment, uh, you have people in finance, structured finance, you have marketing people, internet people, sales people, R&D engineers, so it's a full spectrum of jobs. And basically what the industry is looking for are people who are very smart at what they do uh, and can help uh, uh, make, bring what they know to this industry and evolve this industry.
1: And what industries do they come from? Because I think the question was partly like they're unlikely to come from solar since it's growing. Uh, where, where are the people coming from?
3: A lot of people are coming out of school and going right into solar. Okay, so they're, they're learning solar as as they, as they gain experience. You see a lot of people from the telecom industry uh, on the marketing side and sales side. Uh, Dan, do you want Dan to offer? Sugar? Yeah, so uh,
2: great question, and I agree with what Tom said. I would add, you know, the first thing we're looking for is really, uh, you know, sort of a culture and alignment of mission, okay? We're not doing this for a paycheck. We're doing this because we think it's an imperative – Uh, a duty and an obligation for us to accelerate mainstreaming solar. That's what our mission is, is to mainstream solar energy. Um, Building on what Tom said, uh, in our company at Solaria Corporation, um, we have on our executive team about equal experience between solar and semiconductor. So we're in Silicon Valley. There's a huge uh, uh, talent pool of, of, of expertise there. Uh, that's come there. But we've hired people when NUMI closed, the huge automotive uh, manufacturing facility down there, we hired a number of people from there um, throughout the value chain. Uh, So uh, those skills are transferable. And, uh, you know, whether it's supply chain, manufacturing, uh, design, um, what we're looking for is the best and the brightest that share our vision of a solar future accelerated now. (laughs)
1: Dan Sugar is CEO of Solaria. Our other guest today is Tom Dinwiddie, CTO of SunPower. Let's have our next audience question.
0: First of all, um, we do a lot of import and export with China Taiwan as well. Mm-hmm. And since both the you gentlemen are in the manufacturing, what is the proposition in terms of your understanding if we just have the application, assembly, and the implementation in the United States? rather than the manufacturing. Due to the fact we know the Chinese uh, gets government subsidy, in our case, we just give our you know, company loans and put it to second rather than the first in case there's investment default. But my question to you all, wouldn't it be m- more logical for the American working class to assemble and implement these solar panels or uh, polysolar silicon solar cell, rather than trying to manufacturing it, because every time we try to manufacture anything here, the Chinese will follow through with their – and dump their, you know, um,
1: supplies. Thank you. you. Uh, Well, I'm
2: not ready to run up the white flag just yet. So we're manufacturing – we are manufacturing in Fremont, California. We also have manufacturing overseas. Uh, What percentage of
1: your manufacturing is in the U.S.?
2: uh, Right now, it's about 50-50. The – it's important to recognize that solar panels are heavy, okay? And so when to transport them to the market, there's a cost and there's a time delay. And so there's you want to do manufacturing, uh, at least uh, the, the back end of manufacturing, in the, con- in the countries where the demand is. And so if we build demand here, definitely jobs will come. It's also important to recognize that really only about 25 percent of the jobs in solar are manufacturing, the balance of jobs are, as, as Thomas mentioned, design, sales, installation, service, uh, and so forth. So uh, we do have manufacturing jobs here. We're growing manufacturing jobs here. Um, but there are there are jobs throughout the value chain.
1: Tom DeWitte, anything oh, to ask? I can't add to that. Okay. Good. Let's have our next audience question. Yes.
2: I think this question is on the mind of most consumers who believe in solar, and that is that, We hear in the paper and whatever, and like you folks have said, that the costs are going down. Should we bite the bullet and go solar with our residents today, or do we wait three years?
3: Uh, Tom Dinwiddie, yeah. It's (laughs) a very good question. Uh, In the case, uh, if you're living in California, the state incentive program, the CSI program, uh, is declining every year. So that's design. So, so, really, the cost of buying solar today will be roughly equal to the cost of uh, buying solar uh, several years from now when the program has declined. Uh, so, same uh, thing
1: for some city incentives. Different cities have similar incentives that are also declining.
3: That is, that is correct. So, there's an argument to say it's it's not going to get cheaper on a net basis. Uh, but today, you can get it basically, uh, depending on your your site, for. Uh, virtually nothing down, and, and immediate savings, that uh, that should be incentive enough. And that proposition, uh, uh, you know, it will improve slightly over time, but given these declining incentive levels, uh, not significantly.
1: And if you're worried about your personal carbon footprint, now is better than later, it's for sure. Gr- it's
3: a great time to go solar.
1: <laughs> yes, ma'am.
0: Hi. I had a question. Um in terms of the gridlock we see in our nation's capital, we're not going to see an energy bill anytime soon. So, what in the short term can this community, uh, who are very grassroots action-oriented, do to lobbying our legislators on the federal level about programs or, or pieces of legislation that may be pending that they can take action and contact their congressman? I I hear of um, grant programs that are pending or are due to be sunsetted. Is there anything you can reflect on that?
2: Sure. Uh, Thank you for the insightful question. There's one particular program that is very valuable. It's called the uh, 1603 uh, grant program. Let me explain what that is. Uh, Really, the only federal incentive for solar is there's a 30 percent investment tax credit. That's it. That's for consumers that, that are uh, planning to do solar. It, many businesses and customers, after the financial crisis of 2008, couldn't monetize the credit immediately. So essentially what the 1603 does, the program does, is allows the customer to get the incentive up front in a check rather than deduct it from their taxes. That program is due to expire at the end of the year. So extending that grant program is, uh, it's, called, it's, not a, it's called the 1603 program, is very helpful. Uh, if you go to sia.org, www.seia.org, um, there are instructions in there on how to uh, support that program. That's the single uh, best thing we can do on the federal level. Meanwhile, get engaged, you know, join the Sierra Club. For fifteen or twenty dollars a year, uh, you know, be active with your Congress people. Um, speak up and join join our, our, our you know our movement, uh, accelerating clean mainstreaming solar and accelerating clean energy energy to today and creating jobs.
1: And how about California? Because I think some people would say Washington, maybe a little bit of a long shot, but better odds in Sacramento. What would you say about uh, people could do in Sacramento? That California's done a lot. What more could they do?
2: Okay. So uh, in California, we have the – the industry has an organization called the Solar Alliance, uh, which is part of the National Solar Energy Industries Association. Um, We welcome uh, folks to help us out there. Show up at hearings – Uh, you know, the uh, policy leaders like to hear from the public and stakeholders and concerned citizens. Please engage, show up, show up at hearings, (coughs) articulate your uh, desire to see a a greater, um, you know, acceleration of these programs. Now, we're very fortunate to have an incredibly visionary governor, Governor Brown, who's been at uh, Solaria Corporation and uh, SunPower, I believe, um, to have a – a very strong and active California Public Utilities Commission and California Energy Commission show up at their key hearings when they're talking about these things and uh, express your, your, your support.
3: And as much as anything, Tom get solar and tell all your neighbors about it. It's no money down, immediate savings.
1: Tom Dinwiddie is the CTO of SunPower and Dan Sugar is the CEO of Solaria. Let's have our next question. Uh,
3: this organization calls itself Climate One. And that means that
0: we are more interested in not putting carbon in the air and and uh, increasing the atmosphere temperature. So isn't nuclear energy a green source of energy? And if we could build plants that are passively safe and are proliferation resistant, wouldn't that be a good
1: thing?
3: Well, nuclear energy—it's uh, a very good question. Uh, nuclear energy does not put carbon into the atmosphere, other than the carbon it takes to build the nuclear power plant and to process the fuels and, and so forth. Um, there are uh, environmental concerns with nuclear. Uh, uh, beyond that, having to do with the fuels and the reprocessing and uh, and uh, storage, storage, and taking care of the plant, decommissioning the plant when it's when it's. Uh, Beyond its useful life, the key thing about nuclear is that uh, it's not smart for the ratepayer. So, if we're looking at uh, California having lowest energy costs, solar is already well undercutting the cost of nuclear, um, and will only continue to do so. Uh, So, it's a very risky uh, technology in terms of, of, of environmental issues that could arise. And it's risky in terms of the ultimate cost of energy since it's been so long since we've built a nuclear power plant in this
1: country. And one so reason for that is that they're so darn expensive. They're, now it's a $10 billion proposition to build a plant. Sorry, Dan Sugar.
2: Yeah, so they're not commercially financeable. I, I agree. That was a great question. Thank you. From a, from a CO2 standpoint, it's attractive. But let me tell you a little story. I, ju- I was in Japan two weeks ago. One of our executives is married to a lovely Japanese woman whose family has been farming for centuries in north-central Japan. All their wealth is tied up in their land. They're not planting melons this year for the first time in over 100 years because they don't have a market for their melons because people are concerned about the radioactivity about that. I don't know why this country's gotten to the point where we're scared to talk about caring about the environment. I really care about the environment. I want my sons and my my grandkids to, to live in a place where the environment's preserved and is as beautiful as we have today, and to see what's happened in, in Japan, you know, literally, uh, uh, there's there's a, a, a slew of nuclear reactors that were that were knocked out by that. We almost had the same issue when the floods were happening on some of the rivers here in California, yeah. in in America. People aren't really talking about that. But that's an inherently dangerous, unsafe technology. That's highly non-economic. That's going to put toxic radioactive active material that we don't know how to handle into our environment for tens of thousands of years. You have to be out of your mind to basically uh, support nuclear power. And so I I will vigorously oppose any new nuclear plant, even if it were uh, economic, which it's not. So by the time that new nuclear plant is built 13 years from now, solar will be a third or half the cost it is today. We are absolutely more economic. No nuclear plant should ever be built again, period. But I don't feel strongly about that subject. Yes, (laughs) ma'am.
1: Hi.
0: Given your missions and um, your value proposition uh, economic, uh, environmental, and potentially social uh, what are corporate sustainability programs and practices that you have in place in your companies?
3: Sure. Do you want me to go, Tom? Tom In our particular company, uh, Sun Power Corporation, we do have a corporate sustainability plan. Uh, It looks at a range of things from the carbon footprint of the uh, factories themselves and how we're causing our own factories to go solar so that our factories ultimately become sort of breeder reactors for for solar uh, panel production. Uh, So we look, we've done an audit of our CO2 footprint and we're taking measures across the board to reduce that footprint. A solar panel itself has, on an energy payback basis, uh, anywhere from, you know, four months to two years of energy payback. So beyond that period, it's perfectly clean uh, uh, energy. Um, um, And all the way to sort of the systems that we deploy in the land, we have a program called Light on Land, where we deploy in a minimally invasive manner in a matter where 20, 30, 40 years when that plant might uh, want to be removed, you can take it out of the ground as well as you put it into the ground. And, by the way, the land underneath it is in better shape when you leave it than when you arrived uh, because of uh, measures that are taken uh, over the lifetime of the plant. So uh, there's a range of things that can be done, and uh, most solar companies uh, have a corporate sustainability plan because that's where they're coming from.
1: Yes, sir. Next audience question.
2: Good evening. Um, Earlier today you mentioned about driving costs down, and the industry is going through this huge amount of effort to drive costs down. In doing so, there's it seems like there's a a correction in the market as far as certain solar industries going out of business, for instance, um, Evergreen and Solyndra. So I was wondering, do you
1: participate or do you um, vision – uh, further market correction happening? And if so, do you think there's going to be more players that are actually going to um, discontinue their business and drop out of the market?
2: Yeah. I, so it's important to know that companies, you know, um, thriving and some companies going out of business uh, is natural. You know, when Netscape went out of business, the Internet didn't go away. Okay. So, uh you know, we knew the, the, the executives that founded Evergreen and some of those other companies. It was a great idea. It was too expensive a technology compared to technologies where technologies are today. So the technologies that are going to win are technologies that are uh, both have a low product cost and very high capital efficiency, meaning you can build a large factory for not a lot of dollars. That's what we're doing at, at our company at Solaria, but there's other companies focused on that as well. So, yeah, I think there will be more consolidation. I think companies, you will see, um, you know, additional companies going out of business. But it's important to recognize there's over 5,000 solar businesses alive and well in the U.S. Uh, today. And out of those companies, new companies with, with better ideas, ideas we haven't thought of yet, that are going to um, drive this new technology. This industry, I, I like to characterize it as a transformation transformative and disruptive technology. It will do the same thing to the power industry that computers did to typewriters. And the, the fundamental, the common denominator there is silicon. Okay, These technologies that have evolved, cell phones, DVD players, computers, and solar panels, they all have that as a common denominator. It's unbelievable how fast that technology evolves.
1: Let's have our last audience question.
2: First of all, I'd like to thank you, gentlemen, for your optimistic outlook on our energy future. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, However,
2: I'm from Chicago where we can go three weeks without the sun shining. So if for a region like the Midwest or Germany, when a country or a region becomes highly dependent upon solar energy, Mm -hmm. what happens when the sun doesn't shine?
3: That's really a great question. Uh, Germany has the world's largest market for solar today eight gigawatts a year, roughly, in Germany. That's eight nuclear power plants equivalent. There's no place in Germany that has the sunshine equivalent of Seattle in this country. So the solar resource in Chicago is actually an extraordinary resource. It's a strong resource. All you need is daylight, and you'll be producing power from a solar panel.
2: And just – I mentioned before the website of Richard Perez – He did a very interesting thing. There have been a number of major blackouts in the U.S. for the last 20 years. There was the New York City blackout. There was a big blackout in the Midwest near Chicago. He actually went back and analyzed using satellite images. What was the weather like on every blackout in every region on those days? What he found is that, sure enough, those those days were very hot days driven by sunlight, So when you need the power in Chicago, the sun is shining, okay, and that's where the highest marginal cost, those are the days where the cost, just to give you an idea, like at my house, and I live down on the peninsula here in California, I have time of use metering. I got that before I put solar on my house, and the cost of power on a summer day uh, in the middle of the daytime, time of use is about $0.35 a kilowatt hour, and in the middle of the night it's $0.06 a kilowatt hour. So that, that's the true representation of how the range of costs on these peak days uh, can differ. And those peak days are when the sun is available for you.
1: It's been nice to have some real enthusiasts and optimists here. We often have lots of, uh, you know, heavy topics here. Thank you both, gentlemen, for coming. Real to play. Dan you, Sugar, Greg. CEO of Solario, Tom Tim Woody, CTO of SunPower. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. <laughs> it's been okay. Good? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Sure.